Hey there, I'm Christopher Schoenwald and welcome to Life As A, a show intently focused on helping people find their professional pathway by exploring and unearthing the details of jobs from around the world. Any idea what it would be like to be an investigative coroner? Yeah, I don't know about you, I've got media sort of depictions and stereotypes from film and television, but beyond that, really don't have any idea. Well, how about being an emergency medical physician? Yeah, there is that 90s drama ER, George Clooney. I don't know if you know that one, but yeah, I kind of got some ideas here. Same thing though, how much of that is based in reality? What about just being a general practitioner? So many questions, but fortunately, I was lucky enough to find a guest who's had experiences doing all of these things, and quite frankly, still doing many of them. And you're gonna hear about all of this. Not only that, he has this really, really powerful story about how he made his way into the field that, yeah, quite frankly, it, it's hard not to be moved by. Beyond that, you're gonna hear about some of his professional experiences while working within Serbia and Sweden. We also cover a bunch of other topics, including the challenges of this work, the opportunities, issues such as mental health, the future of the profession, and a bunch of other things. So if you have any interest in becoming a physician, becoming a doctor, you have to check out this talk. And for those who are just interested in learning about a different way of life and living, you're really going to love this. So with that all in mind, let me more formally introduce you to our guest. And uh, from there, we'll welcome him on. So Dr. Nick Kubervik is a 17-year physician investigating coroner in the province of Ontario, Canada, and part of a physician-led system considered by many to be the best in the world. Dr. Kubervik could very well be viewed as a physician extraordinaire by way of his extensive career experiences and dedication to serving others, often in their most vulnerable state. Now to qualify this statement, listen to what he has not only accomplished but been part of experiences in Belgrade, Serbia, working with a pediatric cardiologist in a hospital for premature infants. He studied obstetrics and gynecology in Sweden, 33 years in emergency medicine, the last 10 years of which he served as an emergency department medical director and chief of ER. And during his tenure, he raised his urban city emergency department from the 28th to the 5th best performing one in Ontario. Solo general practitioner for 13 years, sports physician for the Pan Am Games, NASCAR, Indy, and other auto races, Canadian astronaut candidate, correctional center work with training in opiate addiction, assistant clinical professor at McMaster University, a major Canadian university. So yeah, do you see what I mean? I don't know about you, but it's hard not to be inspired by such dedication and achievement. So with all that in mind, here's my conversation with Dr. Kubrick. So yeah, welcome. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you, Christopher. I hope you're well. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, it's an honor to have you on the program. And really quickly, before we get started, I mean, do you want to go by your professional title under doctor or shall we go by your first name of Nick or which do you prefer? I prefer Nick. That's great. Okay. Nick is fine. Yeah, excellent. All right. Well, why don't we get started here? I do have this first segment lined up, Nick, and it's called Coloring Wikipedia. As my listeners know, it's a segment basically where I just read off a definition of what the guest does, sometimes their industry. And I like to do it for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, I think it, it puts a spin on things in terms of, you know, maybe if I were a physician or a doctor, for example, within Japan, which is where I'm based right now, versus where you are within Canada, the duties and responsibilities might be a little bit different. And I think examining the definition allows us to kind of explore some of these things. 
And also too, I think it's just, you know, it shed some light on the profession for those who might not know some of the finer points or details. So I do have you down here, of course, as a physician. And uh, let me just read that off for you. I will forewarn you, it's a bit of a mouthful. I may stumble through it, but uh, I'll do my best. And afterwards, maybe you can comment. Sound all right? Sounds good. Okay, so here we go. A physician. A physician, medical practitioner, medical doctor, or simply doctor is a health professional who practices medicine, which is concerned with promoting, maintaining, or restoring health through the study, diagnosis, prognosis, and treatment of disease, injury, and other physical and mental impairments. Physicians may focus their practice on certain disease categories, types of patients, and methods of treatment known as specialities. Or they may assume responsibility for the provision or continuing and comprehensive medical care to the individuals, families, and communities known as general practice. Medical practice properly requires both the detailed knowledge of the academic disciplines such as anatomy and physiology, underlying diseases, and their treatment, the science of medicine, and also a decent competence in its applied practice, the art or craft of medicine. Yeah, a bit of a mouthful, but first take, what do you think of that? Uh, it's almost all encompassing, but it's, I think it really does miss a huge point, uh, of what a physician is. It misses a mark on disease prevention. So preventative medicine is really quite a myth that, uh, we aren't involved in preventative medicine out there. It's, it's gaining some traction for some reason that I have some theories about, but, uh, you know, we really stand on the shoulders of some great physicians in history, such as Louis Pasteur or Jonas Salk. No matter how contentious the COVID vaccine, you know, COVID nineteen vaccine has been in this pandemic, uh, we can certainly agree. I hope that the introduction of vaccination in history has saved countless millions of lives, as well as uh, prevented the disability of uh, human beings. And and that's what a physician is about as well as prevention. But otherwise, uh, it's a good overview. I mean, in, in terms of your background, this is one of the reasons why I'm really excited by this talk is that you've had such a varied background in terms of some of your professional experiences. And I think listeners today are in for a treat because we're going to be able to touch upon, you know, several of these. And I was thinking maybe within this segment, we could sort of lean into that a little bit, at least generally speaking, you know, as far as some of these roles, routines, responsibilities that you may undertake depending on, you know, your official title. So maybe we could uh, we could have a look at this right now. You know, I mentioned off the top your role as a as a coroner, an ER doctor, and even as a, a general practitioner. You know, certainly there's going to be some commonalities there, but obviously there's going to be a lot of differences as well. So I know you could probably speak for hours on the differences and, and what's similar, but maybe just again, really broadly speaking, we could we could hear a little bit right off the top. Well, I'm, I'm glad you recognize the the complexity of that question. <laughs> it's uh, it, it was very difficult to put together, but for instance, I mean, I'm, I'm like so many people out there, I had no idea what a coroner was all about. I was approached to become a coroner. And all that I knew about it, in a way, there was this old uh, cartoon that some people may have watched called The Simpsons. And there was an unfortunate character there after my name, Dr. Nick, uh, <laughs> who was quite, quite incompetent. And he was with uh, a patient in hospital, and there was an overhead page. And it said, uh, Dr. Nick, the coroner is looking for you. And he said, what the coroner? Oh, I hate that guy. And he jumps out the window and runs away from the hospital. And that's, <laughs> that was kind of my impression. And working in an emergency department was, you know, if the coroner was in, you got kind of creeped out and say, what's this guy looking for? What's he all about? So I had really no idea, but, but it absolutely has a lot in common. Uh, there's commonality between all of this. And in Ontario, there's only two provinces in Canada that have physicians as coroners. And uh, it really, we consider it, and it has been 
mentioned around the world as probably the best death investigation system in the world. They, they expect us to have at least five years of medical experience before becoming a coroner. And it has its own course that we have to go through. But they really uh, tend to want to attract emergency physicians to the field because we basically see everything that comes in the door. It's, uh, it's the whole gamut of, uh, of trauma and medical illness. So we, and, and we have to be trained in so many of these other fields. We have to know a little bit about everything. So again, uh, general practitioner, and we, we know a lot about everything, but we're not a specialist at anything. So, so there is that commonality. Now, in contrast to me, too, the difference between the roles, you know, I hate to say it this way, but as a coroner, uh, you know, when you get involved in a case and an investigation, it's so much more relaxing than working in an emergency department because the person is dead. There's nothing I can do about it. There's not that demand that you have to rush right now and get something done and save that person in an unexpected thing coming in through the door. Now, all of that is very exciting. Uh, so you get an adrenaline rush as a physician too. But there, the adrenaline rush also came with coroner work as well, because what, what really hooked me to the job when I started doing it were, were some really exciting cases. I was lucky that it wasn't something straightforward. And, and just so your audience understands, a, a coroner has to investigate basically unnatural deaths. Uh, so homicide, suicide, accidents. Uh, and then there's this category called undetermined. You might have somebody who dies suddenly and unexpectedly, don't know what the cause is. And once you go through the investigation, uh, you find out uh, that, well, it was a natural death. So many of our cases do turn out to be natural. They start off quite exciting. But the exciting part in investigating those is I get to see what the police forces do. I get to be involved with the fire department, going into a scene right after fires put out, really eerie uh, situations. And really some things that are, you feel like you're standing in a movie sometimes. It really is. And you know, if depending on how adventurous you want to be as well, how physically fit you might be, like I went and rappelled down a cliff to be able to get to a, a body, you know, with the help of the fire department, or we go on a police boat to retrieve a body. So there is an adventure involved in the job that can can make it exciting. Mm. Uh, the public should know that I don't do an autopsy. That's that's a job of the forensic pathologist, and that's another four years after medical school at minimum. Um, and it takes them a while to get their skills up to be able to work on something like a homicide. There, there is one other big reward in coroner work, uh, which has to do with the families. So it was a surprise to me when suddenly I realized that, you know, we're giving families closure and, uh, and a lot of comfort to understand what happened to their loved one, how they died. Yeah, that's, that's really important to them. And then I go to that part of what was missing in the Wikipedia description of prevention. I, realize then how important our job is as coroners in the prevention of another death. So we have a motto, for instance, we speak for the dead to protect the living. And we have to review after deaths, is there any way that we could have prevented this? And this is where the coroner inquest comes in. And many countries have inquests. They have to be run by physicians, but there is an inquest system. And I'll just give you an example. So many people, at least in North America, who are familiar with garage door openers, there's an automatic reverse feature. Uh, that had to come out of a child's death. Uh, so an inquest was conducted because the coroner recognized that, hey, you know, we should have a reverse feature on this machine. And that was implemented uh, through a coroner inquest. So, so we do a lot to uh, help prevent another person from dying. And I learned so much, vice versa, between working as a general practitioner and a coroner. I had coroner cases and seeing other coroner's cases, reading about them that uh, helped me in the emergency department. 
I would see a presentation and I'll, I'll be talking about one later, but that presentation reminded me of a coroner's case where the doctors made mistakes and I was able to then make sure I didn't go that same path mm. and uh, to diagnose the patient properly and save them. Yeah. So you know, really uh, there is a lot of overlap. I hope I answered that. Yeah, no, perfectly. Clearly. I mean, like, as you acknowledge as well, it was a nearly impossible question to answer and to do it in such a concise manner and, and to give a nice overview of, of these different roles and responsibilities. You know, some of them we will get into a little bit later on, but uh, I think that paints a nice picture. And, and also, too, of, you know, some of the, the rewarding aspects, some of the challenges and, and, and everything else. So, yeah, I do appreciate you answering that. I think if you don't mind, I just wanted to add a few things for those, especially there are students who are wondering about family practice or specialization, I always have to balance, you know, what's the lifestyle going to be? And uh, well, family doctor too, uh, you know, they, they have to take home a lot of paperwork and they have to uh, worry about their patients. You take home that worry because I did do family practice for 13 years as well. And, and you take this home money. Did I do everything right in the office today? Did I order the right tests? But as an emergency physician, everything's right at your fingertips. You can get an answer right away and you can walk away and you're relieved that that's it. I'm, I'm done. Yeah. You still might worry about what happened in the day, but and then there's a lot of shift work and uh, corner work and as an emergency physician, but family practitioners, some, it, de- it depends. They have call groups where they have to be available 24-7 as well for over periods. But, uh, you know, you can, what's great for a person going into the profession, they can look at all these possibilities and decide what's, what's my lifestyle? What do I want to do? And you can adjust it to your own lifestyle. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. No, I like that, that uh, addition there too. Yeah. Thank you for that. Maybe maybe we could actually uh, meander over and do a new segment here, Nick, Uh, something called pathways. And the focus of this segment itself is to to illustrate that oftentimes these, these pathways for professionals aren't so straightforward. I mean, there's a lot of zigging, zagging, left-hand turns and whatnot. And in most, for most of my guests that come on this program, that is the case. But always when I am, well, not always, but oftentimes when I'm introducing it, there is this one exception or an asterisk, and it always comes back to the medical field. Like My, my assumption here is that for people like yourself, there is a bit of a, a straight line. But I, I'd be really curious to hear a little bit more about your backstory and whether or not you know, my assumption is correct or, or whether there is some zigging and zagging in this, uh, in this journey for you. Yeah, I hope. I don't burst your bubble. I mean, I've met colleagues who had that straight line. They just knew all their lives. I want to do this. And yeah. that's what they did. Yeah. Uh, no, it was zigzag for me. I had absolutely no interest in medicine at all uh, until uh, my backstory starts, which you, uh, you know, I shared with you earlier too. But it's been uh, 40 years that have passed. And uh, at least I'm grateful that I can share this story without getting too emotional about it. It, uh, it really affected me for a long time. But uh, it, it does have to do with my uh, profound, like an epiphany that happened in, during the military, my military experience. And, you know, as a kid, I, you know, playing with, around with different things, you know, I decided I'd join Army Cadets. So that, that came from an experience I had with family in uh, former Yugoslavia. We went on a vacation to meet the family and they went down on vacation with me to, took me to Greece. And the Greek army showed up on the beach one day, and I just was thrilled by this. I, I couldn't believe this. And uh, little did I know, just after we left, uh, Turkey and Greece went at it with each other in a battle to take over a Cyprus between themselves. They split that island. Quite a worrisome time. But I came home. I was really impressed by that, joining the army cadets. And I joined the same regiment later in the reserves so that I didn't have to work for my father again. He was a, as a manager in a plumbing and heating warehouse. And uh, 
quite a taskmaster. So I said, no, I can't do this. <laughs> and there were no jobs. There were no summer jobs for, for high school students at the time. It was a terrible economy then. So I said, well, my out is the military and uh, joined the reserves, the same regiment. And the uh, general military training at the time and, and now for a reservist is the same as uh, the regular forces. You have to go through general military training, the same as everyone else. And that was fine. And I enjoyed it. And I thought, okay, I'm going to carry on. A couple more years in the reserves, going through num- numerous uh, war games. And then it came down to a battalion level exercise in a place called Meaford, Ontario. You might be familiar since yeah. you're from Ontario. There's a, there's a tank range there. And uh, one night, uh, this was in the fall, it was extremely cold. It'd been pouring rain all weekend. It's a, a long weekend exercise. And uh, I was sent out of the squad to go and hunt for an enemy, a different uh, regiment that uh, we went for. And <laughs> I'm going to try to make a long story short, but uh, the squad leader was a bit gung-ho. And we were walking along a creek. It was called Sucker Creek. But it was actually a white water river. It was raging runoff that that uh, fall, and uh, there was. But the rain had at least stopped. And the moonlight came out, and you could see then that there was a cliff of clay, maybe twenty five feet long, mm. uh, with the wall right below it. The bank had ended. There's just tall cliffs, and this uh, master corporal decided he'd go ahead and put his fingers and toes into the clay and shimmy along to try to get to the bank on the other side. The soldier in front of me followed. I was stupid enough to follow him. And uh, as we're going along, I looked back. The rest of the squad said, no way we're doing this. They were trying to find a way around. And uh, the soldier in front of me then froze. He uh, he got frightened uh, halfway along. He stopped. And I started slowing down as I was catching up to him and trying to yell him to keep moving. And then I could feel just like going down in the ooze. I was going in the river. He went in first. And uh, I was just this wisp of a set. I was 19 years old at the time. And not a very big guy. And uh, I was had two bandoliers of ammunition strapped across me, helmet with his bipod machine gun on me. And I whipped that out to him to pull him in. He grabbed it, fortunately. and uh, But then I lost my balance doing that. And I went in upside down, right to the wow. just sinking fast. I didn't know where I was going. The current was so strong. But then suddenly I felt this arm in the back of my shirt and he pulled me out. And uh, honestly, in those in those seconds, it's so long ago right now. And it's Weird. People have heard of stories of your life flashes in front yeah. of your eyes. I, I could swear I was dead in that in that minute. Um, but you know, I and I saw my life. And when I came out, I don't understand the change. It was an epiphany. I said, you know, I, I'm not going to continue to learn how to take lives. I want to learn how to save them. And what the really crazy story about about this though is that I may have had that 180 degree turn of thinking. But the soldier in front of me who saved me and who I saved, he went on a completely opposite path over the next years. I found out later, I was opening up the newspaper looking at this. He he stalked and killed two women. And our own own regiment, uh, we had police officers serving as well. And they finally tracked him down, cornered him in a mall in Hamilton. They killed him. And uh, But because of him, only later years, I was racked with guilt all that time. So what if I just let him go at that point? Right, right. No, he saved me, and I said, like, "Oh, it's it's a very uh, bizarre situation." And but then I found out that actually, through a coroner's inquest, he could have been uh, stopped earlier than uh, than that when he had a number of charges against him. And is because of his killing spree that uh, Canada came up with what was called a long gun registry. So we had uh, stricter firearm regulations as a result of that coroner inquest. 
and uh, and it also he inspired all their services to to be designed to protect women from violence. And it really made it crystal clear for me that when I took the Hippocratic oath voluntarily from University of Toronto when I graduated, and uh, part of that oath states that above all, I must not play at God. And uh, that's what I had always been going through. It wasn't my business to decide to save that guy. Not just that was an instinct. I got to save him, and it's not for me to to reason why. Yeah, all that. Happened. Wow. So, wow. Sorry, that was my backstory. No, I mean that's yeah. Thank you for sharing that's, that. It's, yeah. oh, well, I still got choked up. I still got choked up. Talking well, I can about, see so. why. I mean that, that that's heavy on a number of different levels. For for yeah, I mean I, mean, I think you know for listeners, for myself, for anyone who's who's, who's hearing this for the first time, I, I can certainly see why that would be a you know, profound experience that, that would force you to, to, to really think and, and contemplate a lot of different issues there. But uh, yeah, yeah. Again, the best I can say is I, I do thank you for sharing that with listeners. And, uh, and also too, I guess, returning to that point of an acknowledgement that, yeah, you know, there are different paths, even, even within a profession like yours, where it's seemingly, it would be the straight line. Well, life has a way of sort of getting in the way at times, uh, for better or for worse, and making that uh, less clear, less obvious. But uh, yeah, so I think it, it still fits very nicely within the segment or within the uh, the context of what this segment is all about. But maybe on that note, we could shift over into a new segment here, uh, Q&A Discovery. We can kind of just continue this back and forth. But I do have this first question lined up here. And again, in referencing some of the correspondence that we had in leading up to this talk, you know, something else that you shared with me is that there's a certain degree of gratitude towards a profession, in essence, of this job, this work of being a physician is exciting and it is a privilege and it's allowed you to have a number of different experiences. But maybe you could tell me and listeners a little bit more about what you mean by that. Well, first, I think you have to understand that I had no family members in medicine in Canada to offer me uh, any insights of what the career was all about as well, right? So once I hit that age of 19, had that uh, epiphany, I had to accumulate a lot of courses to catch up, to be able to have a better chance to be able to be accepted to medical school. So, you know, I, I try to reassure a lot of students sometimes that they don't get accepted. I didn't get accepted for three years in uh, applying to medical school. Found out later in life and researching that, so that's actually the average. So it's an average of three times of applying before you finally get it. So it's not giving up. It's just continuing to try. and. Uh, because I had no mentors, really, I had a whole bunch of ideas of what I wanted to do. Through my study in physiology in undergrad, I got an interest in cardiology. So, oh, I want to be a cardiologist. That actually went out the window in second year med school when I actually did cardiology. <laughs> because they really did not know yeah. what it was all about. Second, I really loved surgery and I enjoyed it so much. And But there's been so many different types of surgery you can do. And that was new to me as well. So from, say, vascular, general surgery, neurosurgery, orthopedics, even obstetrics, gynecology. And uh, again, when you actually experience a lot of those and you realize, yeah, that's a lot of dedicated time. And there was, in my day, unfortunately, a lot of abuse that you would have to take in order to get into a specialist. I'm so glad that has changed a lot. It's I'm so glad that happened. There was an implementation of uh, the mentor themselves they're being paid by the university to teach the students. If they get ter negative feedback, terrible feedback from all the students, they're not going to teach anymore or they're not going to get paid. So that really was a great first step to get rid of that toxic kind of teaching environment. Maybe I would have uh, gone into some specialty at that point. But 
Uh, you know, the other thing that students should know, if you, once you get in medical school, if you have something in particular in mind, now you have to actually spend a lot of time padding up your resume to get into that specialty. You want to prove to those in the field that that's what you really love and that's what you wanted. But I was all over the map. I couldn't decide on anything and then time ran out. Uh, but really uh, very uh, pleased to become a general practitioner because I get to do a little of everything. Like I, I delivered babies for a while and in my own general practice, uh, assisted at surgeries all the time. So you could do any type of surgery, assisting the specialist in that with your own patient. Yeah. Well, it's you, very rewarding. Yeah. You also had experiences, sorry to interrupt you. You had experiences internationally as well. You know, I was mentioning that off the top in terms of, you know, within Serbia and then over within Sweden. And it seemed to me that you've been sinking yourself into a number of different areas to, to expose yourself to perhaps some of these ideas and, and possibilities and, and trying to get to know, you know, what this maybe speciality would be all about. I mean, maybe you could speak to that a little bit as well. Oh, okay. The overseas experiences, uh, <laughs> Yeah, I was doing obstetrics and gynecology in Sweden. And uh, again, I was really interested to feel I almost became an obstetrician in Canada because of that. But again, it was looking at the lifestyle. And for me, I had a problem with it. I didn't want to be up in the middle of the night delivering babies. <laughs> it's, uh, it can be sudden and unexpected. Fair enough. And, yeah. uh, but, it's, but it was definitely the most joyous field of medicine I ever experienced. It was amazing to, to bring these uh, babies into the world and see how happy it makes the families. It was a privilege, again, to be involved in that joyous experience of a, of a family. And then pediatrics in Serbia, again, they were, uh, it was Yugoslavia at the time, they were still together, but I got to experience a country that had far less resources than we do in Canada. And it was amazing to see the dedication of the physicians in a country like that of what they could do to improvise and come up with solutions to lack of technology, lack of services, uh, really quite spectacular. I was, I was very impressed. And, and I started getting, a, I guess, a little bit of an adrenaline too. I had to go on a transfer to pick up a newborn from uh, Belgrade to a city in Croatia, I believe it was. It's, it's so long ago now too. But they had this like a Formula One ambulance. They, they actually had a race car driver deal with this yeah you're laying it flat in the vehicle like us like in your rocket ship like yeah. you're, you're going up about to take off nurse on the other side incubator in between and i look glanced over at the speedometer at one point he's doing 240 kilometers an hour down the highway yeah oh my, I forgot. God. Like, oh my god we're, we're in a racetrack here what is that <laughs> so very different attitude <laughs> yeah slight a slightly different attitude towards Wow. Here in Canada, maybe people were lucky we have a helicopter that could do that yeah. instead. They decided, wow. oh, we'll use a sports car ambulance to get the job done. But you know, it's uh, uh, varied experiences. And I think that's what really started to build up the fact that I, I really love general practice. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, also, too, really quickly, I mean, just to interject once more, I mean, you referencing that point you, you just made of, you know, the health services may, maybe not being as developed as what they were or are, say, within Canada. You know, and, and seeing how these doctors are improvising without all this technology available to them, like being part of that or witnessing that also has got to rub off on you in a certain sense, too, in terms of giving you ideas and, and, and how you can be, you know, going about finding solutions to so some of these medical problems or medical issues in a different way. You know, so if that technology ever does fail, you know, you have fallback options, you have ideas. I mean, that must have been a really rewarding experience unto itself, too. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I do, I am going to touch on that later. 
uh, when it comes to improving, say, the emergency department flow, uh, yeah, you, you share ideas from other countries to try to say what, what works well and can I bring that in. And yeah, that was a, a great experience. I wonder that, okay, if things ever failed here, can I do things that other people can't? Yeah, you know, I've, uh, I've seen and done techniques that have been long forgotten. Right. Hopefully that will never happen uh, here. That we'll, we'll lose anything like that, like a war suddenly hits us. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let's shift on over to this other question here. And I would like to return to your role as a coroner, as investigative coroner. And again, I guess from an outsider's perspective, I mean, I, I think there's a surface level understanding of what that job is about, but it, it, it's quite shallow in, in that sense. You know, you'd already referenced something like this, even for yourself when you were getting into it. But I do think like one of these views on the profession is that obviously, you know, it is centered on a topic that a lot of us, you know, within society like to shun, you know, like to kind of put away in that corner there when this topic of death and, you know, I, I can appreciate the fact that you would probably have a lot of training to go that goes along with getting into this work and uh, certainly a lot of experience, you know, surrounding issues such as that. But all the same, I mean, th- there has to be moments, you know, outside of all of this where like just being a human, just, just you know, the, the, the humanism of, of that work and, and, and what it all represents, you know, to what degree does it get to you, you know, on the personal side of things? You know, how, how, how able are you to detach from the work itself at times? Well, I'm really glad you asked that question, Christopher. I mean, it, uh, I've been a coroner, and I guess you said in your introduction, it's been since 2005. Yeah. Uh, a lot of years. And, and I was able to handle it quite well, especially during the, the earlier years where for me and for a lot of physicians, we have certain outlets that we'll have, like sports. So I really enjoy playing sports. It really helped to get out a lot of that stress and tension. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have all the techniques, and that's probably why you see a lot of doctors go out in the golf course. I'm not a huge golfer, but, yeah. you know, it's always uh, that classic stereotype doctor going to the golf course. Well, there's probably a good reason for that. It's stress relieving for them. There is the training that you go through uh, in medical school, but really there was never a course on how to handle death. Really? I, I, wow. Yeah. That kind of strikes me as something. Hmm. I could be wrong right now. I'm not familiar enough with the current uh, curriculum in a medical school, but from what I've seen in terms of how new doctors are filling out death certificates, I don't think that they have a good courses on on death right now. I think they just expect you're going to learn it. You know, the only way to learn it is to experience the situation. Yeah, I clearly remember having to tell the first family about the death of their 14-year-old daughter in the emergency department. Was uh, a clerk at the time, fourth year medical student, but I had a great uh, mentor who walked me through the steps of how to approach the family, what to do, and and you learn. Uh, it's kind of similar to the interview process you will do with a patient. You know, you have to be empathic and, and show sympathy, but really it, the two have to go together. And that I've just been learning in more recent years that there is literature on this that uh, you you can't have sympathy alone. So empathy is much deeper. Sympathy alone is just saying, well, you know, I feel sorry for what you've been going through, but it could sound very hollow, cold. Yeah, hollow. Could, could and empathy is actually going, yeah, empathy is actually feeling what that person is going through. So sharing that emotion with a person, I have cried uh, with, with families before, and, and I, I know that that makes them feel better. And it's actually a relief for ourselves as well, rather than holding it in. Yeah, yeah. You let it out. You can let your emotions out. But uh, there is there is some toxicity to 
medical culture and toxicity to the medical environment that uh, that makes it very difficult for physicians. There's very few people we can turn to to share those emotions. The colleges in our province and in the country are doing their best right now. They have for years trying to make services available to physicians to reach yeah, out to yeah. for their own counseling because it's very difficult. You cannot share that with your colleague who then thinks you're you're not good enough. Right, right. There's a lot of egos involved. And you don't want to let your regulating body know that, by the way, I'm really suffering from that little child I just saw die. You know, they there's a oh, okay, maybe you're not fit to practice. So there's a very tight, you know, tight rope that we walk on how how much can we share with who? So so this this sort of I don't know the, the the advancements of you know this agenda of mental health awareness and, and sharing and whatnot. It hasn't what you're saying or implying is that it hasn't fully reached, I guess, like the the, the medical colleges or the the boards or advisories just yet. I mean, in other parts within society, it would seem it would seem at least, you know, I can't say for certain, but it would seem that there is a bit more openness in the last three to five years, perhaps. And I think employers are in, in certain industries, perhaps, are, are becoming a little bit more you know, sensitive to these issues, but the medical field and medical practice is a whole different beast. It would seem just sterile and cold. We're, we're not going to go there. And maybe what you were just sharing there sort of fits that, you know, that, that image at least of what I've got in my mind. Yeah. It still might be considered that, you know, it's a paternalistic uh, profession in North America, at least, uh, but they are making strides. They are, they are talking the talk. But and and they're trying to implement processes to try to help, but it's still quite toxic. You know, the women have a particularly hard time with this. That they have to go into what used to be a man's world and uh, have to show this toughness, this coolness in the face of very tragic situations, very emotional situations, and and have this wall up. And it, but that wall. I mean, there there's certain ways that's very useful. You have to turn that switch off. That. Yes, I have empathy and I can show my empathy, but I can't internalize that too much. But you do that for a number of years, there's burnout. It's yeah. uh, it's quite significant among the uh, medical staff, professional staff, and among nurses and physicians in the province right now and, in, and among coroners. We've done lots of uh, surveys to try to find out just how bad the situation is, and it's, it's well, significant. I, yeah, I think the pandemic sort of you know showed that the world over, I mean, for medical professionals, like how demanding that was at times and, uh, you know, what the impacts were, at least, like, I'm trying to think here of like how that, you know, obviously terrible experience that we all went through, and especially within, you know, your profession in particular, something positive that may have come out of it is that, yeah, these people are human. They're going through a lot of stressful situations that, you know, they, they, they do need some help. And it's not a terrible thing for them to be asking or requiring or, you know, being honest and forthright in terms of like, well, we, we do need a little bit more. And then having, you know, services in behind to, to be able to actually provide that to these people. So, yeah, I mean. Yeah, absolutely right. And uh, you hit the nail on the head in terms of it, it took me uh, quite a few years to realize that because we have to have this professionalism and, you know, certainly be able to situations and shut off the emotions as best as you can. But a revelation early in my career that uh, what it meant to be human, that yeah, even though I'm a physician, everyone expects me to be perfect. I can't make a mistake, but I am human. Humans will make mistakes and uh, we have to accept that. But there is that attitude in the profession that you cannot make a mistake. And you're right. The COVID-19 pandemic really uh, created an issue combined with the social media uh, on this, that 
previously uh, wasn't given much airtime, but there's all the conspiracy theories that have come out. You know, you're, there's that paradox where the trust in the physician used to be there, used to, still ranks quite high in terms of trust. But then we as physicians are watching social media and seeing all this disinformation and then people not trusting what we're saying. So yet at the same time, we have the technology and the skills, of the, 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 skills the, uh, the medical advancements. So we're saving more people than ever mm-hmm. and people are hating us more than ever. So there is, I think there was a very important part of that uh, description you had of his physician in the Wikipedia about the art and craft of medicine. And that's, it's that art and craft where we've lost it that I think is driving the uh, patients away to lose trust in us as well. And we might touch on it later in terms of, you know, the, the COVID-19 pandemic brought this business of we can now have interactions on a computer. We don't have to be in person. We could do medical care. And a lot of doctors love that. It was a long time coming, but it has its, its downside, which is now we, we're not having that direct communication. We're not having that eye contact and the hands-on experience. So I can have an examination with you that is really part of the art and craft of medicine. The chiropractors, uh, you know, chiropractic used to be part of general practitioners' uh, Hmm. tool bank. Hmm. Uh, We lost that as things became hands-off. And the chiropractors, good for them. They pick up this and say, hey, you know what? The manipulation of the body really makes a difference to a person's well-being. They've picked up on that quite well. So this detachment in terms of what's happened in the COVID-19 pandemic it has been detrimental mm-hmm. no, that's really interesting i mean that's, that's something that uh you know without speaking to somebody like yourself i don't think many people would have that that understanding so i think for listeners especially for those who are interested in this field i think that that's one of the gems of this conversation most definitely yeah thanks for sharing that i was thinking here maybe we could shift on over into your time within emergency medicine we've we've spoken about that a little bit but uh, off the top, I did mention that you were an emergency department medical director. You raised the urban city emergency department from the 28th to the fifth best performing one in Ontario during your tenure. And I'd love to know, I think it'd be absolutely fascinating to hear from a leadership standpoint, strategic, maybe procedural standpoint, you know, what, what led to this? Like, how did you accomplish such a feat? I mean, that's, that's something. So, yeah. Well, it's very kind of you to say, and I know I, you know, it pads up the resume to have it down there that I was involved in that improvement. It, it's not one person. It's not me. It is a team effort. And uh, trying to come up with an answer is, yeah, it's complex, especially over 10 years. But I did want to start off with saying there's no one person that can take credit for that type of an improvement. Yeah. And I thought, can I, can I simplify this by putting it all together in some little box that we could understand. And, and I actually did come across something as I thought about all the small processes that you do to make that kind of an improvement. I thought about things like teamwork. It has to be proper funding no matter what you do. Even to investigate how do you improve something, you need funding for that. Cultural change is a huge one. And then technology. So that seemed to encompass a lot of how we improved the wait times for patients. But And I hope you don't mind if I go into a, a little bit of background because it is a political impetus that had to push us to make that improvement. Mm. Patient wait times in Canada were becoming ridiculous uh, over time. And quite a few years back, there was a Supreme Court decision that came down and uh, said that this poor patient had to wait for way too long for a knee replacement, over a year. Yeah. And the Supreme Court said to the politicians, you were playing with a term in the Canada Health Act called everybody's entitled to timely access to healthcare, timely to a politician then started to mean, if you're not going to die of this, 
then you can wait. You know, it, it's so what? It's a year and you're not going to die. Yeah. So the Supreme Court threw that in their face that you have to fix this. So they came out with a, a concept to say, okay, we're going to tackle five major areas of medicine that we have to improve on. And one of them was emergency department wait times. So I started coming into that system uh, during this pay for results program. And really what it did was, in a way, cause a competition between hospitals. It was the pay for results was, well, if you improve your wait times for patients, we're going to give you more money. Mm. But if you worse, we're going to take money away from you. Got it. So there was a double-edged sword on that. Yeah, yeah. So I was lucky enough with this coming along, I got my interest to do, look for leadership positions. And I attended a course called uh, the Advanced Health Leadership Program at the Rotman School of Business at the University of Toronto. It was paid for by the government. Otherwise, it's just no way even a, a doctor like me could have afforded it. Mm. It was crazy expensive. So I was very lucky to get selected uh, into the second cohort of that program. And uh, that's where I was first introduced to the lean method, which you probably heard about from other business people. And I, it was uh, two decades of work by Toyota Manufacturing that yeah. came up with the lean method. So I can, I can actually, at this point, thank Toyota for <laughs> making that huge improvement for the small there town of Milton, Ontario. Yeah. The thinking at the time was that there was a lot of waste in the healthcare system. And that was true. And they kept saying, well, throwing money at it is not the answer. Follow up to that, I, with the Rotman program, they offered uh, two more weeks to study the system, the national health system in uh, England, the Great Britain. So I went uh, at my expense that time to study it. Fantastic trip. And what I came out of that with was there's efficiencies up to a point that you can get, get rid of the waste, then you need funding. Yeah. And only now in Canada, it's just happening in this past month, the federal and provincial governments came across it. Oh my God, we have to throw new money into the system. It's falling apart. Mm -hmm. So there always comes that point where you're going to need that funding. Now I had an advantage of having worked in numerous emergency departments around Southern Ontario before I settled down in, uh, in one in a city called Oakville. This uh, Oakville, Milton and Georgetown, it's a tri-hospital site. That was another way the government was trying to gain efficiencies in the system. Let's amalgamate hospitals. Let's close down hospitals. The closures were crazy. I mean, there were some emergency departments shut down in rural areas that I just, I, I can't fathom it to this day, shutting yeah. down places in Europe yeah. where hospitals were five minutes from each other. Okay, let's shut down one. But having then, you know, stayed for a number of years in Oakville, it was a growing, rapidly growing population and emergency department. I got to learn a lot of new techniques from that group. And then uh, was offered that, you know, department director uh, in Milton has moved up north uh, for those for the next 10 years. Now, I came in right at an unbelievable time. And it was uh, 2009. Milton was right in the middle of a 56% growth in population. It was over a 10, 10 year period of time. It was the fastest growing community in Canada and wow. I believe from a, in North America. So I, I came in at, with a population of 40,000. I left when it was 133,000. And uh, the emergency department for 28,000 people. So it was a nightmare challenge right, right off the bat, but, uh, but exciting. So that's first the background. And uh, there was then a cultural change that we had to, to tackle. So here's a sleepy small town of Milton. You know, you, you, you would have maybe two nurses on. And when it first started as emergency bar, I worked there before I was chief for a little bit. Very long shifts, 14, 16 hour shifts two nurses on at night with you, that's it. 
Uh, but there were times you'd get to sleep, uh, but totally changed. And you've got all the nurses who've been exposed to that suddenly dealing with now huge volumes coming in. Mm. How do you change the, the culture? So the culture, we we have to then devise, just introduce them. I had already known. A lot of doctors will say, what are you talking about? This already exists. I said, yeah, it exists now. But it didn't when I, this is, this is the beginning of all the improvements that happen everywhere. So you have to divide people into streams. And the NHS in Great Britain was excellent at that. You know, if you have a person coming with their stubbed toe, going to our fast track area, you know, we, we have, we played around with names, you make it unique to your own hospital, but you're coming with chest pain, you're going in right away, you're going in an acute stream. There are a variety of streams. Britain had it split into multiple streams. Yeah. And, uh, what was tough for the, the cultural part, this is as, as an example, the nurses who were used to saying having two on overnight and you've got two abdominal pains in the department and a chest pain comes in and you got the stubbed toe. Well, he's now fourth in line to be seen. But then you have an ambulance come in with two motor vehicle collision patients, another person with chest pain, that person with the stubbed toe, he keeps going down the list. And before you know it, they've got a six, eight, 10 hour wait. Yeah. But to then try to tell the nurse, well, you know, we're going to split the stream. And that person with a stubbed toe is actually going to be seen in two hours. They're going to they freaked out because they're going, well, wait a second. I need to see that chest pain first. Yeah. So, but wait a minute. Think of all the patients who are coming up to you, interrupting your flow, interrupting your work, complaining about their weight and what's mm-hmm. going on. It was very time consuming. And so then you apply a lean method. So, you know what? We're going to split the streams. We're going to introduce it. And then after a time, we'll remove it. And boy, when you... When you follow programs like that and you remove it, then they're all freaking out. Oh my God, what are we doing going back to the old ways? We've got to do the new way. We got to do the streams. Yeah. So it was you learn these techniques of how to break the culture. And then the teamwork. You know, I had to hire a really good team. And you know, emergency graduates are gonna look at a small town like Milton and go, I don't want to work in this cottage country. I, yeah, you know, I want to be in an urban center, I've got everything, you know, not the lack of services. So we had to work very hard to try to, and I worked with medical schools to explain just how exciting the medicine is in a small town where you don't have everything at your fingertips and you're it. One example then was uh, in terms of cardiac conditions. So Seattle, Washington was always a gold standard on uh, survival from cardiac arrest. A whole group of us in our region, uh, Halton Healthcare became the best performing region in in North America. Mm -hmm. So we had the fastest time. So I could get a person from Milton Emergency Department to a catheter lab for their the life-saving procedure and uh, faster than if the person walked into the cath lab directly in the hospital with the cath lab. So we had to, again, going through lean methods, we improved that transfer mm-hmm. time so much that those numbers were awesome. It was all best for the patient. So it was teamwork. It was, uh, and when people saw that, graduates in, from medical school, they said, hey, you know, what's Milton all? What's this? Yeah. And it was such a growing community, it probably helped. And I try to then make sure that the values of the person I'm hiring are not bent on speed and emergency power, which is so important to mm-hmm. have. You mm-hmm. want to have that speed, of course, speedy yeah. doctor. But you also want them to have the values that it's not monetarily driven, that they have more values than that. It's important, but hey, you know, let's, how do we improve the system? So I made sure I was hiring people like that. And uh, an example, again, another lean method example was then telling the physicians who were used to like 16 hour shifts, saying, you know what, like eight hour shifts now. And they're all up in arms. Oh my God, I'm going to lose so much money. And I knew like the business is there all the time. You're not yeah. going to lose money. Right, right. 
if we split up the teams, the people are still there. It's just instead of six hour backup, you know, I got a three hour backup, but they, they couldn't see that until you introduce it. And uh, so all kinds of resistance, you introduce it and then you take it away from them. And it was amazing to see everybody buy in at that point to realize that wait times for everybody and all streams reduced. Their lifestyle is better. Morale is better. So that touches on, I think, on a lot of the most important mm. uh, yeah. things I can, I can go over. I mean, it's just too many things in 10 years. Well, what, what struck me there is like a few things. Like one was you going out and seeking information, whether it was skilling up, you know, through some of these programs with the University of Toronto, I guess you'd mentioned one, and then also going overseas at your own expense to kind of learn and discover what other people are doing. You know, other hospitals within North America, you'd mentioned one within Seattle. So there's, there's one, there's this willingness to really learn and, and, uh, and, and also too, to not just learn within your professional field, like you're referencing this lean approach, which was, has its origins in the automobile sector, you know, and applying some of the principles there within your area. So I think like there's this broad based approach to it and openness and curiosity towards trying to solve some of these problems. And even one of the other things too, I mean, we'd, we'd mentioned this already, your time internationally, you know, learning different techniques and tips over there that, you know, if the technology fails, perhaps you are prepared in that sense as well. So it's, it strikes me as like a lot of these things have come together and, and just this willingness, this attitude towards it is, is really, you know, what, where a lot of this, this change probably developed from. So yeah, I really do appreciate you uh, sharing that. But also for the, for the sake of time and for this podcast, I do have a few more questions here I would like to get into. And one here, this is a big one. I would like to return to you a little bit here if we could. And uh, it was about this award that you won, came from one of the hospitals you were working at, and it was a Values Inspired Performance Award. And this is probably one of the most meaningful ones, at least from what you conveyed to me and for obvious reasons regarding this coming from the family of, uh, of a man whose life that you'd saved. They were advocating on your behalf that the hospital, you know, give this to you. Maybe you could speak to that. Again, uh, I, I, I'm not going to take credit for myself. It's a team approach. I mean, it, it was such a wonderful thing to get that. It's rare for physicians to have any sort of acknowledgement from, from anybody about the work that we do day in and day out. So when it does come along, it's a surprise. It's a shock and it's a, it's a privilege. Um, more so the, the happiness of, that it brought the family or what you did uh, with your team to bring to others. So this uh, gentleman came in, he was only 40 years old and he was having chest pain. And uh, again, thanks to technology, they had said he was here a year before with the same condition and they found nothing wrong. They put him through everything, stress tests, echocardiogram, you name it. Couldn't find what was causing his chest pain. Fortunately for technology, I was able to quickly bring up all that was done the year before because everything that I was doing at that point still was showing nothing wrong. He was also showing neurological symptoms. So I thought, this is really weird. You know, some, something bad's happening. So when I brought up his echocardiogram, it was a completely normal result. But then I read the details and it did say that his aortic root, so the large vessel coming out of the heart, uh, the aortic root was at the upper limit of normal size. And then it hit me being a coroner, seeing people die of aortic dissection because it was missed. Uh, I said, oh, my God, this must be an aortic dissection. And uh, long story short, I, I quickly called the radiologist. We arranged the scan to prove that that is what's going on. Uh, and it confirmed it. But that phone call really dropped my, my heart. I thought, oh, this guy's dead. He's not going to make it. 
you know, we have a vascular fortune. And then it, this guy was so lucky. He, he also had an you know, angel on his shoulders as well because an ambulance was right there ready to take him for me. I was on the phone with a new vascular surgeon just hired at our Oakville Hospital, which was about a 10, 15-minute fast ambulance ride down the highway. So he heard the story, he got the operating room ready, and so Kate sent him direct to the OR. So it was like 10 minutes, he's up in the OR in Oakville. And when I read his surgical note, I was shocked. He opened him up and that dissection splitting the, you know, had split the anatomy so much, it was unrecognizable. So right up the carotid artery. And uh, he was magnanimous enough to come out afterwards and said, you know, I'd never seen a diagnosis this fast or a transfer this fast in my career. Credited me, but uh, it wasn't just me. It was, it was that whole team. So when I got word that I, you know, the hot, it was the wife of this uh, man that nominated me for the award. She knew about that award because she was a nurse in the hospital. I had no idea she was one of our nurses. And uh, whenever she'd meet me in the hallway, she'd give me a hug after this. It was just so heartwarming. Uh, but even better, it's going to the award ceremony and the, the hospital, again, in terms of people hearing the talk about needing to reward people for what we're doing, our hospital uh, has made this um, long-term award uh, ceremony. So for people more than you know, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years uh, experience, and VIP award was part of it. And so I went and uh, that patient was there with his family, with his young daughter, um, and uh, just gave him such a big hug. It was great to see him up and walk and, uh, and normal. It's great. I mean, I, I, I would suspect, I mean, that, that's got to be part of the reasons that any medical professional gets into that line of work. It, it is certainly not everyone's going to be involved in, in situations like that. But at the end of the day, you, you are making an impact. And, you know, I, like that example right there is at the, the, the biggest scale of, of what that impact could be of course. And mm -hmm. that type of thing, like we often speak about professions and, and what they mean and the nuts and bolts of it, but that, that's something that touches you know, the heart, you know, for lack of a better word, for, for you as a professional. And the, the, the takeaways for that, like the, the profound feelings of reward of what that offers to you from almost in a selfish sense of like, I, I, I made a difference. And there, there, there's something there, you know, that you can, at the end of the day, when, when you finally do hang up, you know, the jacket, like that, that is going to stick with you. And no matter what you've done, everything else, I mean, that is meaningful on so many different levels that, uh, yeah. You're right. And you know, that, that is an answer to how so many of us get through the work as coroners or, or emergency physicians. You, you won't get that reward from anybody. You have to have that reward in your own mind that, you know what? And I did a great job today. Yeah. And you have a whole career of that. And you go back and you always, dwell on those people's lives you made a difference for it. Yeah. It's such a, a great experience to keep you going. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a good yeah. point though, too, is, is, is allowing yourself to do that. Cause I'm, I'd imagine people somehow, some way, the way our, our minds work, we block that out and we sometimes only focus on what we didn't do correctly. So it, it's, it's having that awareness as well, you know, within your line of work, especially to, to, to go back to those. And it's not a terrible thing to do, you know, to, to draw reference to some of your accomplishments and uh, yeah, certainly can help you get through some of those challenging moments, I would, I would assume. So, all right. Well, you know, in light of all the stories that you have been sharing already uh, within the, the course of this talk, I am going to count some of those as a water cooler story segment. Again, I'm aware of your time here, and uh, I don't want to be taking too much of it. So maybe we could shift on over into this last segment, a crystal ball segment. 
And here, you know, as the name implies, we're looking towards the future of trans prediction, so on and so forth. And I'd love to get your take on this rise of technology within the medical field. I mean, certainly it's been part of it for a number of years, but right now, a lot of my conversations are tracking back to things like AI and the future impact of what that might have. But even beyond that, I mean, there's, there's something that you spoke about, like home diagnosis, basically via apps or, you know, digital medical care. I mean, there's so many different things that you know, I'd be curious to hear, just lightly at least, you know, your take on some of these, you know, what, what excites you, maybe what concerns you a little bit. Again, yeah, another huge uh, topic, because as you know, as you said to me uh, in our personal conversations before, there's just so much in every field, so many amazing advances everywhere. And I'm reminded of uh, my great-grandmother. I was told the story of how she cowered under a bush when she saw this huge predatory bird coming after the first time of the biplane flight in her area. So she had no idea what biplanes were and uh, scared the, the bejeebers out of her. And, and not too long after that, people are walking on the moon. And I've had that similar kind of experience even in my you know, 35 years as a doctor that uh, all these things we mentioned, the apps and so on, you know, if I forget one of the five possible causes of a person's symptoms, I can go to an app and go, oh yeah, <laughs> instead yeah. of trying to hunt down a book or trying to rely on your memory. So yeah, amazing technological changes, even the stethoscope, I really think it might be on its last legs. Mm. So the traditional one that we know of being around for about a hundred years and uh, now it's, it's going to be replaced by ultrasound. So we now can attach probes to our phone yeah. and you could put it on a chest. You could see a pneumonia where you wouldn't hear anything. You could listen to a lung. You wouldn't hear the pneumonia. You have to send it for a chest x-ray. Now a probe can show that for you. Save the lady's life using, the, you know, seeing that she had a ruptured ectopic pregnancy. That was my first use of ultrasound, bedside ultrasound. We had the big machines first coming around, right. roll it around the hall of the emergency department and saved her life. Again, it would have, you know, I'm sure she would have crashed. And hemorrhagic shock on me, uh, which had two liters of blood in her, had I not had that ultrasound to see what her problem was, and uh, right off to the operating room. Hmm. So the ultrasound is being an amazing piece of technology that's going to be, as I said, it should just be hanging around the, the neck of doctors in the future, a phone and a, and a probe, and that's all you're going to need instead of a stethoscope. Uh, electronic medical records is a huge issue right now. It's, as I mentioned with that story, the, the VIP award really important, but it's also the bane of physicians' existence right now because the platforms keep changing, everything gets more complex, time-consuming. It's taking people away from that direct contact with a patient. Mm. So it really comes down to what do we want in the future? Do we want a, a doctor not even making eye contact with you, typing at a keyboard? And I'm sure some people can relate to this. Yeah. They're not interacting with you at all. Yeah. Is that what you want from a physician? And well, there goes I that empathy think... that you we were speaking about before, too. I mean, how how much more difficult would it be to show that, you know, in, in, in that sort of setting? But I do see that the future uh, becoming that this will be a, a marriage of two things. Maybe we will be replaced by computers one day, but that's a long way off. The way things are moving, how fast they are, maybe I'm wrong. But, uh, you know, it's sitting with a patient, you know, I, I there's nothing like that, that direct interaction with the person. and. Uh, there are things still that machines cannot grab onto that, that gut instinct too, where you can't just follow an algorithm. I, you know, I, I think about that gentleman with the chest pain and the dissection Would a computer clue in, you know, it will come up with a differential diagnostic list, but do you want to send that person for every test under the book now to figure out what it is? Mm. Looking at that report, go, Hey, wait a second. That, that aortic root 
is it on the upper end of normal? That's not quite right. Yeah. And is that does that make sense with this? So it's that gut instinct that I, I don't know if machines can replace. Yeah. Well, I think oftentimes too, it's when people are looking at say something like a tool such as AI, and right now with you know Chat GPT and all the other iterations that are coming down the line. I think the fear for some people is that, or maybe the excitement is that this will replace a lot of, you know, jobs or improve efficiencies and whatnot. But I think, you know, a more realistic sort of view of it all is that it is still a tool. It's a tool that, you know, we can use, we can leverage, but it's not necessarily a complete replacement. And I think that human element of, you know, looking at what the tool offers, and maybe that algorithm is highly developed, but it, it doesn't encompass everything just yet. So looking at it from that vantage point, I think offers possibility, but it, it can get a little bit dicey if you're just saying, well, okay, this is going to come in and it's just going to completely take over the, the role and responsibility of this person in their work. Maybe the, the, the way the person approaches their work is going to be different because they can leverage all the, the possibilities of what this, this tool offers. But, you know, I think that is the distinction there, at least the way I see it. And I would imagine within the medical field, the way you just sort of spell things out, that could be the way that it maybe is introduced and leveraged a little bit. But yeah, we'll see. I agree with you completely, yes. And uh, that hopefully it's not introduced too early as we've seen with like the self-driving cars. Mm. You don't need to throw AI into this too early, but to use it as a tool that we can turn to and uh, it can be very beneficial, absolutely. Well, I must say, Nick, I mean, it's been such a, a riveting talk and we've covered so much ground. And uh, yeah, I can't thank you enough for, for sharing your stories, insights and, and everything for that matter. So thanks again. Thank you so much for allowing me to go over such a complex topic and. Uh, I do really take pleasure in mentoring my students to give them a, an excitement uh, in the profession to to not give up and just yeah just let life take you down whatever path you choose right that uh, there will be something you're going to find and, and love in uh, in your career. Well, for those interested in learning more about Nick, you can certainly check him out on LinkedIn, and he also has a private health clinic that he is launching, and I will have the uh, the link for that as well. You can check that out. And if you like today's show, please be sure to share. I mean, it goes a long ways. You can also rate, review, and subscribe wherever you access your podcast. And also too, I did launch a channel over on YouTube in the last year where I do host the video portions of the conversations and I do have some imagery associated with the talk. So you can kind of take it in, in a different manner. If you do make it over there, you'll notice right away that that channel is fairly new. So, uh, you know, if you've got a second or if you wouldn't mind, hit that subscribe button. It would really, really help. And then finally, don't forget to tune in to the next episode of Life As A, where we'll continue to explore and unearth the details of professions and the people behind them. I'm your host, Christopher Schoenwald. Until next time, stay curious about life and living. Thank you.